Andrew Womack Ministries presents this message titled, How to Study the Bible, Part 2. We pray that the Word of God will come alive in your heart as you listen. We've been ministering on how to study the Bible, and this is our second part dealing with this subject. And uh, just by a little bit of uh, recapping some of the things that we've talked about, we aren't going to go into great detail. You can get a tape if you've missed this. But a lot of people I know would think, well, boy, I'd rather hear something, you know, more powerful like faith or this or that. But did you know that you've got to get into the Word of God your own? Like Cliff, boy, ministered this morning about how you've got to be single-minded on the Word, and there's no telling how many times he said we've got to be in the Word. And that's true, but how do you get in the Word? You know, not just a couple of days ago, my little boy Peter uh, was trying to uh, spread his honey on his toast. And you wouldn't think, I wouldn't have thought so, but you've got to teach a kid how to spread honey on a toast. Did you know that? I thought some things you just knew. But did you know, we gave him that knife and he'd stuck it up exactly sideways and just rubbed it a little bit and we told him to lay it over flat. So he laid it exactly flat to where it wasn't doing anything. We had to tell him to tilt it a little bit. And you know, it's amazing how much instruction you had to give on how to spread honey on a piece of bread. I wouldn't have thought about it. And lots of times we don't think about it. We tell people to be in the Word. We tell people to saturate themselves, to meditate any day and night. But praise God, I believe that it is really practical and beneficial just to learn how do you get into the Word. And so that's what we've been talking about. And to my surprise, I've already had a lot of people come up and say, boy, this was just an answer to their prayer. People praying that somebody would share along these lines. So anyway, I believe that this is really something that's beneficial. And it is, it is constructive, praise God. We can't depend upon other people spoon-feeding you all of your life. You've got to learn to be in God's Word and learn to devour it and study it and receive from it on your own. And so I believe that this is really beneficial. We've already talked about that there are different methods of studying the Word. Some people aren't aware of that. Some of you are. And we've listed some of them already. We've talked about them. But one of the first points that I made was that the best method of studying the Word is to use them all. Amen? Not just one or two. And and I'm not going to go into great detail on this, but, but in case you miss, many people you see decide, well, I'm going to either systematically study the Word and say, for instance, they're convicted about, boy, they need to be in the Word more. So they hear somebody come along and say, you need to study the Word from cover to cover. And I've got a plan that in one year's time you'll read every scripture in the Bible and you will be in the Word. And they leave the impression that this is going to produce victory by studying the Word systematically. Well, it's beneficial. That's one method of studying the Word. But if you depend upon that solely, and if you think that that's being in the Word, you're going to be lopsided, and you're going to be far behind the person who also has learned how to deal in topical study, also word study, meditating the Word, and other things like this. And then again, many people, you see, have seen how powerful a topical study, like studying the subject of healing is, and they single up upon healing or on some scripture to such a degree that they get really developed in that area but then they're completely deficient in others because they have zeroed in upon one subject. And so the way to keep that from happening is along with a topical study, study systematically, like just through an entire book or through the entire Bible or, or a covenant or something like that. And I really believe that it's beneficial for you to realize that you need to combine them all to, to do it effectively. I also believe that this is one reason many people get into error because they take somebody's tape or something and, and praise God, the Lord knows I'm not against tapes, amen. <laughs> 
We put out a lot of tapes. We're putting out about 45,000 tapes this month, and we distribute tapes all over the place. I believe in you using tapes, but many people use them as a substitute for their own study of the Word. That's not productive. If you take the subject that somebody's talking about and study only what he points out, you're going to be limited to that man's revelation. So it's important that you learn to realize that you need to study beyond things like that, and a systematic study put together with a topical study will continually be bringing new revelation across your path. You see, you won't be just zeroed into one thing. And we got a lot of lopsided people, did you know? We got a lot of people that, boy, they're strong, their muscles are developed up here, and they hadn't got any legs at all. They couldn't get up and run or do anything, amen? They develop one aspect of their, you know, Christian life, and the rest of it is deficient. And so I believe that's one of the big problems is because people haven't realized that you should study and combine all of them. We've already talked about the first two that I mentioned, which was a systematic type of study, and we talked about the benefits of that, and we talked about a topical type of Bible study and the benefits of that. And uh, there's a lot more could be said, but praise God, I'm going to have to skip through something, amen. Let me also make it clear that by no means are we dealing with everything. Like I've had some people since then come up and tell me more ways that they study the Word and things. Well, praise God, we could stay here until the Lord comes, talking about things that the Lord has shown each individual. This is not going to be a complete thing, but I believe it's going to hit some of the major points, and it will be productive and beneficial. Amen. So what I want to get on tonight, and I'm going to have to try and hurry through this so that I won't stay here, because I have preached a series of three or four messages on this one thing. But I'd like to deal with another method of Bible study that many people don't even realize is Bible study, but yet you've got to realize it for it to work and for it to be productive, and that's to meditate the Word of God. Meditation on God's Word is Bible study. It is being in the Word. Let's look over here in Acts, the sixth chapter, at a passage of Scripture. In Acts, the sixth chapter, it says in verse 1, And in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among, your, among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, that we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Now, the disciples right here were saying that it wasn't their job to sit here and do some of the menial task in the body that they needed to look at somebody else to do it, and it said that they wanted to give themselves continually to prayer, to the ministry of the Word, and it says over here in, a, what was it, the second verse, that they should, it was not reason that they should leave the Word of God and serve tables. Now, when I talk about Bible study, and I know that some of you have come across this, that when you hear people talk about get in the Word, get in the Word, get in the Word, when I first heard this, man, I got in the Word, just like this. Amen? I mean, I went to studying it and reading it nearly 24 hours a day. That's all I did was just cram the Word into me continually. And praise God, I am not minimizing that. Don't anybody misunderstand what I'm saying, because how are you going to meditate something that you hadn't got in there to meditate, amen? You've got to put it in there. But then you've got to also realize, and I even went to an extent that I came under tremendous condemnation if there was an hour went by that I wasn't reading the Bible. Now, some of you may think it's a little strange, but some of you, the same thing happens if there's a day that you don't read the Bible. And did you know that uh, I realized that sometimes I'd be up and I'd minister to people, I mean, for 18 hours straight. I was acting on the Word. I was doing exactly what I knew God told me to do. I'd be home and I'd praise God and say, Thank you, Father, for the great results and the things we saw. And then I'd get to thinking, Boy, I didn't even open up the Bible today. 
and I'd begin to get condemned and bum out because, see, I hadn't been in the Word, and I realized how important it was to be in the Word. Well, I got to meditating on this scriptures about, about the disciples, and did you know they didn't have a copy of the Word like this? When they were talking about being in the Word, they weren't talking about being in the Word like this. The only word they had was the recall of the scriptures that were read in the synagogues and also the recall of what the Lord Jesus had spoken unto them and eyewitness accounts. They depended nearly entirely upon meditating on what the Lord had already spoken to them and they considered that as being in the Word. Now, boy, that really began to set me free. Because did you know there are times, brothers and sisters, when you aren't supposed to have your nose in the Word? Now, I know that sounds strange, and there's some people saying, Brother, I, I can't believe you're saying these things. But did you know that I'm not supposed to be in the Word right now as far as sitting here reading this? God's called me to minister the Word. If all I did was stay in the Word all of the time, I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing right now. Did you know there's a time to go out and to beat the bushes, amen, and to tell somebody, praise God, and give what you're getting? I know that there was a period of time one time where I went about four weeks and all I did was get up in the morning and study the Word for 16 hours every day. That's all I did all day long. And finally, after about four weeks of that, I just got so full. It was like I was, you know, had been eating the whole time and I was going to throw the whole thing up if I didn't go out and use some of it. I couldn't take one more bite. I couldn't take one more revelation. And it was just like the Lord said, I'm not showing you anything else until you do something with what I've given you. Amen. And so, anyway, I begin to realize that there is a value in meditating upon God's Word. That's what these disciples were using. It is a valid form of being in the Word. And many times, see, I think that we haven't received the benefit from it because we are so interested in being in the Word this way. I'm not trying to minimize either of them, but I'm trying to show you that, again, I believe we need to combine all of them, brothers and sisters, because the person who uh, maybe doesn't have time to be in the Word 16 hours a day, but if they read one hour a day and if they meditate it all day long, they'll be ahead of the person that just takes in knowledge continually. The way that you get revelation knowledge, the way that you get this from being just head knowledge and into your heart is through meditating upon the Word day and night. Amen. Amen? Did you know the Bible does not tell us to pray 24 hours a day? Now, there is a scripture that says pray without ceasing out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, but brothers and sisters, that's not talking about praying 24 hours a day. Amen? Some of you aware of that? A lot of people I know talk about that that means you've got to be in the attitude of prayer all the time. I'm not praying right now, amen? I'm ministering the Word of God. I am not praying. That doesn't mean that you're supposed to pray 24 hours a day. That means pray without ceasing. When you set your jaw for something, once you pray for something, don't quit, praise God. Be like an old dog. Hang on to that bone, praise God, and don't let go until you get the thing that you've desired. That's what the Lord's saying. Don't quit on that prayer. Hold on to it. The Lord never gave us a commandment to pray without ceasing as far as 24 hours a day. But there are a number of commandments, like, for instance, Cliff ministered this morning on Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, to meditate in this book of the law day and night. Psalms chapter 1 says that, that he meditates in his law day and night. And first, first Timothy chapter 4, Paul told Timothy to give himself wholly unto him, meditate upon these things, give yourself wholly to them, that your property may appear unto others. We do have commandments to meditate daily continually, all of the time. You can keep your mind stayed upon the Lord, and this is a valid form of Bible study. And I can tell you that I depend more upon meditating the Word of God than I do any other type of Bible study. 
Now, whether that's right or wrong, I'm not going to hold myself up as an example, but I'm saying I'm busy, and maybe I'm more busy than what I should be. But did you know that I stay in the Word continually through keeping my mind on the Lord, through meditation, through seeking the Lord? And some of the greatest revelations I've ever got when I hadn't even opened up the Bible, but instead I have been sitting here meditating upon the things that I have already read and that I've already put upon the inside of me. And as I meditate upon these things, God begins to give me revelation. Amen? And there's a lot of believers that have not been receiving the benefit of this simply because they didn't understand how important it was. Let's look at some of these scriptures that I quoted over here in, in uh, Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8. As I said, Cliff's already touched on this this morning, or last night I guess it was, he dealt with it, but I know there's some of you that weren't here, and anyway, it goes right along with what we're saying. But it says, out of Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. Meditating on God's Word is a necessity if you're going to do God's Word. And, of course, you could bring to bear upon this just literally hundreds of scriptures. For instance, over in the book of James where it says that if any man be a hearer and not a doer of the work, He's not going to be blessed. Faith without works is dead, out of James chapter 2, verse 20. And so doing the Word of God is tremendously important. And brothers and sisters, you are not going to do something that you don't meditate upon. You can't do it. You've got to continually dominate your thought life with this. There's a scripture in Proverbs chapter 23, verse 7. If you'll look at this real quick. I was told I never let people look up these scriptures that I quote, so I'm going to let you look up these scriptures, amen. The reason I do that is I can talk faster. You can get a tape. Out of Numbers chapter 23, verse 6, it says, Eat thou not the bread of him that hath an evil eye, neither desire thou his dainty meats, for as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, saith he to thee, but his heart is not with thee. Of course, the word right here is ministering this about a carnal man, but the principle is here that as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. What you stay your mind upon, brothers and sisters, is what your actions are going to do. Did you know that this physical body does not have any power of itself to do anything? Many people think that this physical body is corrupted, that it's evil, and that you can't trust it, things like that. That's not so. This physical body is not evil. It has been corrupted, and we're in the process of renewing it, but in itself, the physical body doesn't have any power to do anything at all. It does exactly what it's told to do. Amen. A lot of people say, well, I just can't help but eat. You know, I just can't control myself. You can too. I forgot who, I think it was his brother up in uh, Denver. I'm not going to call his name. He may not want me to call his name. But this last week, he was telling his people that the Lord told him that he liked being fat. And he said, I do not. And the Lord said, you do. And he said, I do not. And the Lord said, you do. And anyway, finally the Lord won out. And he said, what do you mean? And he says, well, you're the one that's eating that stuff. He says, if you didn't want to be fat, you'd quit eating. Slow down on your eating. And you know, that man, in effect, was saying, God, I just can't control it. Well, you can control it. Brothers and sisters, there is nothing. Your body has never made you do anything. This old saying about the devil made me do it is not the truth. The devil may have enticed you, but you're the one that did it. Amen. He may have tempted you, but you're the one that gave in. The Bible says out of Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, he says, I call heaven and earth to record against you this day that I have set before you death and life, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life. And the understood subject of that sentence is, therefore, you choose life, that both you and your seed after you may live. The devil is definitely a factor. He fights against us, but when it comes right down to it, you are what you have allowed yourself to be. 
You have either chose to be what you are or you have allowed yourself to be that way because you didn't have the ability, you didn't have the Word of God dwelling in you to be able to resist the devil. Amen? So the point that I'm making is your body in itself is not evil. It just does what you tell it to do or allow somebody else to tell it to do. Amen? And it cannot do anything of its own. It takes orders directly from your brain up here. Your brain tells your body what to do. And if you are thinking and dominating yourself continually with the Word of God, then, brothers and sisters, your body is going to do as it's told. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And the problem is the reason we aren't more prosperous, the reason we aren't more healthy, the reason we aren't walking better in the Word is because we are not dominating ourselves with this Word. And again, somebody might say, Brother, I've been in the Word five hours today. Well, how much did you meditate and think upon what you read? Did you know I've read, I've done this before where I read Scripture and after I get through, I couldn't even have told you what book I was reading in. Have you all ever done that? You can be doing something and not really doing it, not letting it get down on the inside of you. But if you will dominate yourself and discipline yourself and begin to stay your mind upon the Lord through meditating the Word of God, these things will begin to dominate you. A scripture goes along with this is Romans chapter 8, verse 6, where it says to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. To dominate yourself with the Word of God. That's what spiritual mindedness is. Amen. Are you all aware of that? Out of John chapter 6, verse 63, it says, The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Spiritual-minded is word-minded, amen. A lot of people think spiritual's being spooky with your hands folded or acting a certain way. Or you got to say Holy Ghost instead of Holy Spirit. Or, you know, we got all kinds of things that makes people spiritual. Amen. But brothers and sisters, being spiritual is being word-minded. And so if you are word-minded, if you dominate yourself thinking on the Word of God, you are spiritually minded, and the Bible said it produces life and peace. Is anybody here expecting, experiencing anything except life and peace? Then you aren't spiritually minded. Amen. Well, brother, I'm not condemning anybody. I'm just making my point. Amen. I'm not experiencing life and peace totally the way that I'm going to be experiencing it, but the reason for it is, at least I know where the problem is, it's because we haven't learned how to dominate ourselves. You see, Satan comes in and begins to plant other thoughts. A lot of people watch, you know, things on the news and they get petrified about what's happening in the economy or about what's going on in the world. I, for, I guess I was on a radio program I was making or something, but the Lord got me off on this subject about how that, you know, I was just excited. I get in there and make radio programs and I get preached happy. I get to talk in the Word of God, and I just get real excited. And I was in there praising God, and while I was praising God over this radio program, I knew there was somebody sitting there thinking, how could he be that way? What's he got to praise God about? And so the Lord had me start ministering along that line. You know that there were some people that were discouraged, and I just started telling them where the problem is. I said, if you're discouraged, there may be many different reasons, but the basic principle is that you got your eyes off of Jesus and you got it on other things. Out of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says to... Uh, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And then it says, Consider him who endured such contradictions of sinners against himself, lest he also be wearied and faint in your mind. I misquoted part of that, but I got that third verse right. Amen. <laughs> It says, lest you be wearied and faint in your mind. If you are weary and if you're feeling like fainting, the basic principle is that you have not considered Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. You've considered something else. 
And you know, there's a whole area here that you could literally minister on for days that I hadn't got time to go in. But your mind, brothers and sisters, is either Satan's avenue into your life or it's God's exit out of your spirit. Amen? Your spirit has no direct control over your physical body without going through this brain. Y'all aware of that? If it did, you'd be healed automatically because you've got the health and the life of God living on the inside of you, but you've got a soul that's standing in the way, and you have to learn how to submit yourself, and you have to get your thoughts in agreement. To be carnally minded is death. It doesn't matter if you have the life of God living on the inside of you. If your mind is dominated by carnal things, it will produce death. Carnal doesn't mean necessarily sinful. Of course, sinful things are carnal, but carnal simply means all the five senses. You could be looking at the truth. You can be looking in a test tube. You can be listening to the news and have it verified by a dozen people. But if it's carnal, if it is contrary to what God has said, it's carnal. And if you think on those things, it'll produce death. The doctor may be just as sincere and he may be just as right in the natural realm telling you you've got a month to live. That may be truth. But if you are dominated by what the sense knowledge has told you, you'll die. But if you dominate yourself with the scriptural truth that by his stripes we are healed, that his words health unto all my flesh, you'll live. It's impossible for a person to die sick who is dominated by the word of God. And some people say, brother, now that you're throwing stones. I know somebody that tried and believed God and it didn't work for them. The Bible says to be spiritually minded is life and peace. It didn't say 90% of the time or 95% of the time. It is life and peace. If you are not having life and peace, we are not dominated by the Word of God. Isn't that simple? And one of the most important ways, brothers and sisters, to establish your thought life is through meditating the Word of God. Did you know that you can sit here and cast down thoughts? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, excuse me, let me see, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5 says that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Amen. We just explained what carnal was. They are not carnal, but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down of imaginations, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing into captivity every thought under the obedience of the Lord Jesus. Well, that scripture's powerful. You know, a lot of people don't even know that's in the Word. But it says that we can cast down every high thought and bring into captivity every thought under the obedience of the Lord Jesus. That means that your mind can be 100% total all of the time stayed on Jesus. You do not have to let the trash of the devil enter into your thinking. You do not have to be plagued by thoughts that are contrary to God's Word. A lot of people just take it for granted that their head is always going to be going the wrong way and they have to just learn how to abuse it, to deny it, and to operate by what their spirit says. Well, now, you'll never reach a point to where you can sit here and trust your head totally. You've always got to be directed from your spirit, but you can reach a place to where even your emotions and your mind gets in gear with the Word and it's not fighting you. And that's a good place to be. Out of Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14, it says, Strong meat belongs to those who by reason of use have even their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. You can even get your senses in your soulish realm exercised to discern both good and evil. They don't always have to be contrary. I've heard somebody say that if you want to find out what God's will is, take your first thought and do exactly the opposite and you'll get there. <laughs> and did you know for a carnal person, that's just about true. For a carnal person, that's about true, but that doesn't leave any room for growth, amen? 
you ought to be reaching a place where your first thought, your first inclination is to obey God and to act on the Word. You can do that if you'll dominate yourself with the Word of God and renew your mind. The Bible says out of Romans chapter 12, verse 2, that we could be not conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our mind. You can renew your mind. You can cast down thoughts and bring every thought into captivity and under obedience of the Lord Jesus. Now, boy, that's important. And it says that these are weapons. In other words, none of us are there yet. Amen. So we have to learn how to rebuke thoughts. We have to learn how to cast thoughts down. We have to learn how to use weapons. But did you know that there's even a better thing than that? And that's to learn how to get so full and dominated by God's Word that you don't have any room for any other thoughts. Do you know the best way to get rid of carnality is to put so much spirituality in there you don't have any more capacity? Do you know you've only got a limited capacity? And if you were totally given over to God, you would have no capacity for the devil. Amen? Amen. Did you know if we weren't so well educated in the things of the devil, if he hadn't taught you how, how to be sick so well, you'd have a hard time getting sick. Amen. It's not easy to get sick. Some of you are thinking, well, boy, where have you been? <laughs> it looks easy, but the reason it's easy is because we're so well grounded in it. Man, we expect it. We used to expect it. I believe you're renewing your mind. But see, we've been taught that way, and that's the reason that it works. The Bible says out of Romans chapter 16, he said, I'd have you to be wise concerning that which is good and simple concerning that which is evil. But it's usually just the opposite. We're usually wise concerning that which is bad and simple concerning evil. And as you think in your heart, if that's the information you've got, you can't act. You can't have this body act on anything except the information is stored up there. Did you know it? Now, you've got the life of God on the inside, but until you get this brain educated to what's happened on the inside, you aren't going to see it flow freely through you because this body takes directions directly from your mind. That's the reason. See, you've already got the life of God. The Bible says we're complete in Him. You're already born again. You've already got the Holy Ghost. You've already been made perfect in Him, in the Spirit. But you aren't only a spirit. You're a spirit, soul, and body. And you've got to get it out of your spirit and through your mind and into the physical realm where you live. And that's the reason God's called teachers and apostles and, and prophets and teachers and pastors and all these things, amen, is to get this brain educated to what's already happened down here. I'm talking to your brain. Now, it's going to benefit your spirit, and your spirit will bear witness. It'll set your spirit free, but I'm talking to your brain, amen. Y'all aware of that? Some of you need to put it in gear. And so meditation upon God's Word, what you are doing, you are dominating your thinking process so much with God's Word that you don't have time to be carnally minded. You are continually spiritually minded, and the result has to be life and peace. You get your heart your soulish man established in the things that you've already received in the Spirit. And brothers and sisters, it's powerful, and people have not been drawn upon this like what they should. Let's look over here in uh, Hebrews chapter 11. I'll show you another scripture on this. I'm trying to hurry through this because, praise God, I could spend all night and all next day ministering on meditation. And I know that many of you have already heard some of these things, so I'm just putting you in remembrance on some of it. Out of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 15, this, I believe, is one of the keys about how Abraham operated so strong in faith. It says, And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. 
And boy, I missed that for a while, but one day as I was reading that, I started meditating on this, and the Lord showed me. He said that this verse, in essence, is saying that if they had been thinking, if they'd been mindful of the place that they left, and to them, you see, God had told them to leave a country and come out into another country that he'd given them for a possession. So in other words, if they'd have been thinking contrary to what God called them to do, if they'd have been entertaining any of these other thoughts, then they would have had opportunity to have returned. But you can turn that verse around this way and say it, and it'll still be consistent, that since he did not think on the country that he left, he did not have opportunity to have returned. Boy, that's powerful. A lot of people wonder, how come Abraham was so strong? The Bible says in Matthew 11, verse 11, that what I've got is greater than what Abraham got. If you're the least saint in here, you've got more power, more faith, more authority, more anointing, more everything than what Abraham had. If so, how come Abraham was seeing so many great results more than what we're seeing? One of the reasons is because, brothers, this man dominated himself with the Word of God. He meditated in it. That man put God's Word first place. This right here says he was never mindful of the country that he left. Do you know if most of us had been called out to leave a country or something, we'd have sat down and thought about, look what I'm giving up for God. And look at what it's cost me. And you'd sit down and probably pray to the Lord and bawl and squall and bellyache all the time you're doing it. Amen. And many people go through that and then they wonder how come they're tempted to go back. It's because you were mindful of that. Satan can't come at you, brothers and sisters, except through your brain. Satan comes and plants thoughts in your brain. And if you entertain them, you know, that's what it says over there in uh, James chapter 1, that every man is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And when, and when uh, lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. Sin does not just happen automatically. It's no spur-of-the-moment thing. If you're having problems with lust, it is not the actual inst incidence that's the problem. It's the things that you've been meditating upon, the things that you've set before your eyes, the things that have come into your brain, because Satan can't tempt you until that knowledge comes. I tell you, man, you could go a thousand different directions with this. But this is the reason that the law was so deadly. The law, when it was given, brought the knowledge of good and evil unto us, and at the same time it was a deterrent to sin, it also made sin come alive. And you can see that in Romans chapter 6 where it says, I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And there's a scripture over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I believe it's verse 56, that says that the strength of sin is the law. Well, a lot of people wouldn't believe that's in the Bible, but that's there. The law actually strengthens sin. I don't understand that totally, but there is a nature within us that when this knowledge comes, there's a desire to rebel and to lust after these things. You can take a group of kids. They can be playing fine. Everything's all right. Nobody's touching anything, and you can say, you're doing great, but whatever you do, don't touch this. And those kids will have been doing fine, but the moment you say, don't touch this, if they aren't disciplined by the Word of God, they'll get to lusting after that thing, they'll think on it, and pretty soon they're right there. Have you all ever seen that with any of your kids? <laughs> it happens. And one of the reasons is because when the thought comes, when you entertain a thought, then you have opportunity, or you could say temptation, to respond to it. But on the other hand, if you don't have the thought, you cannot have temptation to respond to it. Did you know I've heard many missionaries talk about when they go over into these pagan tribes and things like that, and they go to these people that don't wear anything but little G-strings or something like that. They're naked all the time. Did you know that they go over there and they find very little adultery, very little ungodliness, very little perversion of sex at all? Because for some reason those people have been deficient 
in knowing that it was wrong. Nobody's come along and told them that it was wrong. They haven't got shows on their TV. Praise God, they had not even got TVs, amen, <laughs> that exploit sex and do this. The seeds aren't planted, and although there's plenty of opportunity, there is no, there is not as much perversion as we see here because, you see, it's continually planted and implanted in us. I watched a little excerpt from the 700 Club the other day, and they were talking about subliminal suggestion. I think that's the way that you say it. But they were talking about how sensitive the brain is and that in many of your uh, magazine articles or stuff, they'll have pictures there in the magazine that looks just like an innocent picture, but in it, in a hidden fashion, is a picture of a nude lady or something like that. And without people realizing it, their brain is picking those things up and they are conceiving lust for these kind of things. And they say that pornography, if they'll put that in front of people, pornography sales will double, triple, and just mushroom. They do the same thing on TV among some of these innocent so-called ads. They come across with just something that you can't pick up with your eye and recall it, but your brain can see it. And it plants a seed, and they say that the advertising world is making a killing off of it. Now, of course, praise God, that doesn't affect a born-again believer if you are protecting yourself because nothing can get down on the inside of you but what you allow to. We've got authority over those kind of things. You can bring your thoughts into subjection. I'm not saying that to minister fear, but I'm saying it to verify that even the natural realm has seen how important your thought life is. And they're beginning to exploit some of those things. But a lot of Christians, man, we just let our mind be rattled with trash continually. Many people wouldn't dare come in here cussing or drinking or, you know, smoking. They wouldn't dare come into the church. But you'll sit there and think some of the worst thoughts. You'll think, I don't like the way she plays the piano. I don't like the color of her makeup. I don't like the way she painted her nails. You'll think things like that and without realizing that you're being critical. The Bible says out of Psalms chapter 1, Blessed is the man that standeth not in the seat of the scornful. Amen. If you're scornful, brothers and sisters, you wiped out the rest of those verses right there that talked about uh, how the blessings of God would come upon you and you'd be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. you got to realize that if you're sitting here harboring scornfulness, if you're critical, if you're all of these kind of things, if you aren't operating in love and keeping your mind dominated by the Word of God, you're giving Satan an inroad and then people say, how come it didn't work? I prayed, I believed the Scriptures, I did this, and, but you did those things for five minutes and thought carnal for 60 years, amen. <laughs> how come it didn't work? We've got to learn that this mind, brothers and sisters, is powerful. Now, the, the real life of God's located in our spirit, but as I said, the life that's within you will not affect your physical realm until you get this mind renewed. And that's exactly what Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 saying when it says, Present your body as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world. How do you keep from being conformed to this world? By the renewing of your mind. By renewing your mind. You got to start dealing with that, and the most important way that I know of to deal with the renewal of your mind is through meditation on God's Word. Meditating God's Word, brothers and sisters, is keeping your mind holy upon these things. Let's look at a scripture over here out of 1 Timothy chapter 4. Paul's admonition to Timothy in verse 12 says, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attendance to reading. Now notice what he's saying. We're talking about how to study the word. He's telling him to study the word. And notice what he said. He said, give attendance to reading, but that was only part of it, to exhortation, to doctrine. 
Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Meditate upon these things. And then he says, after a semicolon, give thyself wholly to them that thy profiting may appear unto all. And I believe that the Word of God will define itself if you just keep reading long enough. Amen? Everybody's always trying to find out what the Word says, and they go somewhere else to find out what the Word says. If you keep reading the Word, the Word will tell you what it says. And I believe right here it gives an explanation of what is meditation. It's giving yourself wholly to it. In other words, dominating your entire thought process, everything. Like Cliff mentioned today about, you know, the cow chewing the cud, and I've heard people use all kinds of examples. And praise God, you could go on and on about what is meditation, but just real simple, I believe it is just giving yourself wholly to it. That you are continually, continually, continually dominated by thinking, meditating the Word of God. Now, in Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, it says, Don't let this word depart out of thy mouth. But you shall meditate therein day and night. The reason speaking the word is so important because you know you can't speak something that your brain doesn't allow. That's the reason speaking in tongues is so hard. Do you know what? The reason people have a hard time speaking in tongues is because it's not coming from your brain. It's coming straight out of your spirit. Out of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, it says, If any man pray in an unknown tongue, his spirit prays. Your spirit's praying. Your brain, though, has to okay it. Your brain can stop your mouth from talking. Did you know it? Some people say, well, brother, not me. When the Holy Ghost hit me, I talked for five days and I couldn't control it. I, I just, there wasn't any way I could have controlled it. Well, if you couldn't, you ought to cast that out of you. It's not God. The Bible says out of 1 Corinthians chapter 14 that the spirits, spirits, and it's not a capital S or anything like that. That's talking about your spirit. The spirits of the prophets are subject unto the prophets. If you can't control the speaking in tongues that comes forth from you, you need to get it cast out of you. Now, the Holy Ghost can definitely put a squeeze on you, amen, and he can encourage you, and if you got any smart at all, you could say, you know, that I just couldn't control it. But technically, you could have controlled it. You may not have wanted to control it. Now, there are examples like that. But if you can't control it, you need to get out or get it out, amen. <laughs> we had a lady in one of our meetings, some of you were there, and she just went to praying in tongues and carrying on, and I went back and talked to her. I rebuked the devil. I did everything I knew how to do. And she just kept, glory! And then she'd speak in tongues and throw her head back and get with it. And I told her, I said, lady, that's not a God. And she said, oh, this is God. This is God. And I said, that's not a God. And finally, I just told her, I said, I love you, and I don't want to kick you out, but that devil's leaving, and if you aren't going to let him get out of you, then you're leaving with him. <laughs> Amen? And Larry, our bouncer, finally came and... Carried her out. Where's Larry? He's around here somewhere. Our six foot four bouncer, he just helped her out. Amen. But you see, that's a misconception. You can control things, and it's important that you realize this. You can control things. Things have to bypass your... They have to go through your mind in order to manifest in your flesh. So it's important that you begin to dominate this physical mind. And it's also important that you realize that until your mind does get in agreement and begin to receive and entertain thoughts that the devil throws at you, you can't conceive them and you can't act on it. Did you know you just can't act on things that you don't know what they are? If I was to tell you to go do something that you had no experience in, like, for instance, we got a computer up there at our office, and if I was to tell you to go up there and program that computer to do something, there's no way that most of you could come close to doing that because you have no knowledge to act on. 
It's impossible. I mean, you just never make it. You would have to gain the knowledge before you can act on it. Well, it's the same thing. You know, that's the reason the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Until you hear, praise God, you can't act on what you don't know. Out of Romans chapter 10, how can they believe on him whom they have not heard? They've got to hear before you can act. It's the same thing in Satan's realm. Unbelief and doubt comes by hearing Satan's word. Until you entertain these words and think upon them, you can't act upon them. And we ought to be wise concerning that which is good and simple concerning that which is evil. And we simply haven't done it. If you would adhere to these scriptures about meditating God's word and realize that that's being in the word and anything, anything, anything that withdraws you from meditation, keeping your mind stayed on God's word, quit it. If it costs you your football game, or if it costs you anything, quit it. Now, there's nothing wrong with a football game. You can watch a football game and still keep your mind stayed on the Lord, Amen. somehow. <laughs> but I'm saying that there's some people that can't. There's some people that can't handle a football game. There's some people that can't handle any outside problems at all. And, man, you may have to withdraw yourself from a lot of things. But whatever you do, you've got to keep your mind stayed upon the Lord. And if you do, then it'll produce only life and peace. And, bro, I just believe that this is one of the most neglected things that the body of Christ is doing today. Many people are beginning, to, you know, to have devotions, and they think it's great. They read their devotions, and the rest of the day they meditate on the things of the world. I guarantee you, one hour's worth of Bible study is going to be worth very little unless you dominate yourself with what you've studied. And so this meditation has to be used in connection with other types of Bible study. If you are not meditating at all time and keeping your mind stayed upon the things that the Lord has shown you through the Word, you are not going to benefit, you are not going to profit, you're going to allow Satan to sow thoughts in you that sooner or later will bring forth a negative harvest on the inside of you. Amen? And some of you may be looking at me like, well, brother, you're a preacher. You can meditate on the Word all day long. I've got to go to work. But did you know that you can meditate while you're at work? Amen. Worry and fear is nothing but meditating on the things of the devil. Amen. Have you heard anybody say words to you that, you know, like say, for instance, you were waiting on a doctor's report or something like that about somebody and they say cancer, and all of a sudden you begin to worry? I mean, the moment the words come, fear comes, worry comes, it came through words, and the reason that worry and fear dominates you is because you are continually thinking upon the words negative that were spoke. Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. You're meditating upon yourself or upon your problem. And you know that you can go to work and you can be depressed all day long, still do your job. You can go to work and you can worry all day long, still do your job. Well, if you can do that, praise God, you can turn it around and meditate on the things of the Lord, and you can do your job and do it better because your spirit will be released, amen. You'll be operating in joy and praise. You can dominate yourself, brothers and sisters, every thought into captivity and under the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is an area that most people have just let the devil steal. We've allowed the devil to have it, and most people think, well, you can't keep your mind stayed on the Lord all the time. You sure can, and you'd better, amen, if you're going to operate in victory if you're going to see these things work. You take a person that is meditating upon the Word of God, and I guarantee you the Word of God works for them. The Word works. If it's not working for you, it's because you didn't work it. It's because we've entertained other thoughts. And as you think in your heart, that's what you're going to be. It doesn't matter what you've got in your head. It's what you're thinking in your heart, what you meditate upon, dwell upon all of the time, brothers and sisters. That's what you're going to become. Out of Matthew chapter 6, verse 22, the Scripture says, The light of the body is the eye. And if your eye be single, then your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye be evil, then your whole body shall be full of darkness. 
That's saying that what you have focused your attention upon is what you're going to be full of. Amen. If you focus all your attention on the Word of God, you'll be full of the Word of God and what the Word of God can produce. If you are full of something other than the Word of God, it's because you have meditated on something other than the Word of God. No exceptions. Some people think that's hard. Well, that's tight, but that's right. Amen? <laughs> that's just the way that it is. I tell you, there's so much more could be said about meditating the Word of God. I'd encourage you to study it on your own and meditate about meditating, but I've got to go on or we'll never get anywhere. I've got a lot of things still to cover. But I just wanted to make that point that it is really important that you see how vital meditation on the other forms of study are. Amen. And until you begin to combine that, you are not going to benefit from your Bible study. And this will also be a blessing to you that when you get in a position where, say, for instance, you, you can't study the Word. Maybe you left your Bible somewhere. Praise God, I'm not, I'm not hindered if I, don't leave, if I leave my Bible somewhere. I used to hear old Kenneth Copeland, you know, say that he'd rather go out of the house without his pants on than without his Bible. Because if he had his Bible, he could believe for another pair of pants. <laughs> And that was my attitude. I carried a dagger up here, and I carried my sword under my arm. Amen. In case I laid my sword down, I had my New Testament sitting up here. I kept one with me all the time. I wouldn't go anywhere without it. And then one day it struck me, what good is it going to do for you to carry this under your arm? Amen. Because if you get in trouble and need something, if you don't already have it in your heart, it won't get there. Amen. You can't go say, now let's see, where is this scripture? <laughs> Man, if you're in the battle and if you run into trouble and if you've got to go run and get your concordance, you've already lost. You're going to have to go get somebody's help. If it's not in your heart, it's not going to work. And I begin to realize I just carry the Word around in my heart all the time. Now, it's still beneficial to have your Bible in case as you meditate, God shows you something, you can turn to it. But I'm saying I used to be dependent upon the written Word and I found out that the written Word doesn't really produce life until it becomes a living Word on the inside of me. This is the true Word that is working in my life is the part that's on the inside of me. This is good to give the knowledge here and as I meditate on it, then it becomes living down on the inside of me. But the living Word is what's setting me free and that's what I depend upon. That's what I draw on. That's what I've got to carry out with me, amen, not the book but the words that I have made real and alive on the inside of me. And it's become a blessing to me because there's times that I can't be sitting here just with my nose in the Word like that, but no longer do I allow the devil to come and say, you hadn't studied the Word today. And I say, man, I've been meditating on the things of God, and I'll just go to give him a few shots about what God showed me, amen, and tell him. And that's being in the Word. Now, don't you take this as an excuse not to be reading because you can't meditate something that you haven't read. But I'm saying that it needs to be used in conjunction with it. Also, another thing that I'd like to talk about, another method of Bible study that is really beneficial is to use a cross-reference as your Bible study. Like, for instance, what I'm talking about is that especially in the New Covenant, there are a tremendous amount of New Covenant scriptures that are quotations from the Old Testament. And you can't get a proper perspective on what the New Covenant's saying unless you see what was quoted and what it was talking about. And many times people just read through and they don't ever pay attention to any of these kind of things. Let me give you an example on this out of uh, Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, Jesus was entering into Jerusalem and the people were crying and saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. And when the scribes and Pharisees heard it, they got upset. They got displeased. And in verse 16, Matthew 21, it says that they said unto him, Hearest thou what these say? And Jesus saith unto them, Yea, have you never read out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise? 
Now, that's a powerful scripture, and you could get a lot of good from it right here, but you will miss some of the good from it if you don't see where he's quoting from. He said, haven't you ever read? Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings, thou hast perfected praise. Where did he quote from? Psalms chapter 8, verse 2 is where he's quoting from, and if you'll keep your finger there in Matthew 21 and look at Psalms chapter 8, verse 2, It says, Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast ordained strength because of thine enemies that thou mayest still the enemy and the avenger. Now, as you compare them, another thing you've got to remember as you study the Word is that the Word doesn't contradict itself. Some people would look at this and they'd say, Well, boy, that proves that the Word of God isn't true because in one, it was quoting the Scripture and it misquoted it. No, that doesn't mean it's not true. The way that I look at that is that, man, this Bible... You know, the, the book of uh, John says that if all the things had been written down that Jesus began both to do and teach, I suppose that even the world itself should not contain the volumes that should be written. Boy, this is really trying to reveal the nature of God to us. This is a very small revelation trying to reveal a big God. And rather than the Lord saying it exactly the same way both times, I believe he preserved the exact truth, but he put it in two different ter terminologies so that as you compare them, you can expand your understanding of what he's saying. In other words, the Word becomes a commentary upon itself. And you'll find that really I don't know of any New Testament quotation that is word for word of the, what the Old Covenant said. They differ. But I don't believe that that's uh, uh, inconsistency. I believe that that's a good way to do it, amen, because it gives you a broader understanding of what's being said. And as you compare the two, you find out that in Psalms chapter 8, verse 2, it says strength instead of praise. And so you can see that the Lord Jesus said that praise was strength. They're interchangeable. Praise is strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10 verifies that, and it puts them together, seeing it is not a contradiction, and it'll expand your knowledge about praise. And it goes on to say in the rest of this verse that thou mayest still the enemy and the avenger. And you see that praise is not only something you do just to worship the Father with, to bless yourself or to bless God, but praise is an offensive weapon. It stills the enemy and the avenger. Now, you wouldn't get that from reading only Matthew chapter 21. And many people, see, don't do this, and as a result, they miss things. Also, you have to have a working knowledge to a degree of the Old Covenant because I guarantee you tremendous amounts of the New Covenant are based upon it. And if you don't go back and learn some of the quotations and what he's talking about, you're going to have a lopsided opinion. So it's important that you learn to cross-reference, and when you see something that it is written or this is what it said, go back and find out where it said it. And it'll give you tremendous amounts of revelation. One last thing on this right here. I'll give you another example out of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I did a study not long ago about a woman's place in the home, submission and things like this. And this has really been neglect, I mean, uh, abused. Many people have made women to wear a rug or a mat for a man. That is not what the Scripture's teaching at all. There is a subjection of the woman unto the man, not womankind unto mankind. And I've had that taught to me. I had taught that women were inferior to men and that a woman, you know, couldn't do anything over a group of men. That is not what the Scripture says. You'll find out in 1 Timothy chapter 2 where it talks about it, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where it talks about it, 1 Peter chapter 3 where it talks about it. It is always emphasizing the woman being in subjection unto the man. It's got an article in front of it that makes it a definite man it's talking about, not mankind. 
And I saw that truth, and man, it excited me because I could see that the teaching of submission doesn't apply. You are not, a woman is not supposed to submit unto me. My wife is supposed to submit unto me. And the teaching of submission does not apply of mankind over womankind. And when I saw that, it was a blessing. But 1 Corinthians chapter 14 didn't seem to be consistent with that. And here's another principle of interpreting the Word of God is, uh, out of James chapter 3, verse 16, it says, The wisdom that is from above is, first of all, pure, peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated without partiality and without hypocrisy. That's James 3, 16. The Word that when God gives you revelation from the Word, it'll be pure. You don't have to sit here and ignore a few scriptures or twist some to get around it, amen. It'll be pure, peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated. Well, this, this verse right here didn't make it look like this was easy to be entreated. And I was checking it out. See, I wasn't going to take it until I could see that it harmonized. And out of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, it says in verse 34, Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And as I read that, it just looked like that a woman couldn't say anything in the church. And again, it looked like this one was an uh, exception to the others where it made it clear that the woman issue was directly related to her husband, not unto mankind in general. But as I began to look at this, I got to saying, where did the law say this? See, he said, as also saith the law. Where did the law say this? So, man, I got every kind of concordance, every kind of reference material I could and tried to find out where the Lord said this. And you know what? You can't find it. I couldn't find it. Now, somebody else might be able to find it, but I'm saying to the best of my ability, I haven't been able to find it. And I've looked through everything I could find. And so I began to pray, Lord, I know it's in there somewhere. Where is it? Amen. I couldn't depend upon the reference, so I just depended upon the Lord at last resort. Amen. <laughs> and the Lord began to speak to me out of Galatians, I mean, out of Genesis chapter 3, where he placed a curse upon the woman and said, Your husband will rule over you, which definitely goes right along with some of the things that he was saying right there. But again, you see, that you can go on in this and teach on it, and I'm not going to give you the answer. You can get a series of tapes on submission one and two and find the answer out. But the point that I'm making is, again, you see, as I looked up a cross-reference, as I looked and saw where that thing was quoted from, it answered it and, again, put it on the basis of a man and wife, not mankind and womankind, and it put it into perspective. And you see, you'd have missed that if you hadn't been able to look and cross-reference and do things. And a lot of people don't draw upon that, and they don't study the Word that way. Amen? Praise God. I'll hurry on through. i got some more things. We're going to try and cover the different methods, and then the next time I minister, we're going to talk about there are some principles that you use, some basic truths that you have to start with and being able to uh, interpret other scriptures and stuff, and we'll get with that. And I tell you, that's going to be real beneficial. But I want to go ahead and talk about, for instance, a word study. This is another thing that a lot of people don't realize the benefit of. Words communicate and transmit thoughts. That's all they're good for. Do you know what? Words just transmit thoughts. Your thinking is where it's at, but words allow you to think. Right? For instance, I've used this example. Some of you may know what I'm talking about because I've used it before. But if I was to say to you uh, that you ought to go to the water, blive it, and get some water, most of you would not be able to relate to that. Your mind just goes blank. You can't grasp that. You can't embrace it or anything because what's the water blivet? But see, in the Army, we had water blivets, big old rubber things that were round. They were hauled in, carried either 500 or 1,000 gallons of water, and they had a spigot, a, a brass spigot on each end, and you'd sit there and turn that thing on, get your water out of it, and it'd compress, 
as the air pressure from the outside compressed. That's the way we got our water. They were flown in by helicopter. Now, it still isn't a very good explanation, but some of you, because I have described it with words, can now relate to it. And if I was to say water blivet, although you may not understand what it was, you could at least, you know, conceive of it. You could grasp it because, you see, the words were thoughts. That word water blivet didn't mean anything, but words that you did understand painted you a thought, a picture. Y'all see that? You get that? And so words are only good to communicate thoughts. And if we don't understand what words mean, then you're going to miss what God's saying to you. And this is one of the big problems, especially if you're reading this Elizabethan jive. Amen. <laughs> because a lot of the language doesn't mean to us what it did originally. There's a lot of words that people have taken and they have made them a religious thing. Like, for instance, the word baptism. The word baptism wasn't a religious word when the Bible was written. It simply meant to immerse or to submerge. And But you see, today when you say baptism, boy, people immediately think, well, Church of Christ, Baptist, Catholic, somebody else, they start tacking a doctrine on it. Or do you sprinkle? Do you dunk? Do you do this? All of these kind of things. Well, you know, the word baptize, lots of times it talks about, uh, for instance, baptism in ways that it's not talking about the baptism of the Holy Ghost, that it's not talking about baptism with water. There's many baptisms that are spoken of in the Word of God. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said, I have a baptism to be baptized with. And he wasn't talking about getting dunked or receiving the Holy Ghost, amen. But you see, sometimes words take on religious connotations, and it's important that as you study the Word that you also study words, that are in the Word, and make sure that you're understanding what God is saying by this. And so a very beneficial way of studying the Word is to do like word studies. We talked earlier about a topical study where you just take a topic like healing, for instance, and you study it. You can also take words, just one word, and if you're having trouble understanding what does this word mean, you can gain revelation of what this word means by just taking that word and, to say, for instance, get a concordance, and go all the way through from Genesis to Revelation or however long it takes you before the light dawns, amen. And as you start studying and seeing how it's used in context and seeing the different ways that it's used, all of a sudden you'll get a perfect revelation and understanding about what that word means and about what it's doing. Y'all see that? And many times people are all the time trying to say, well, I wonder what this means, and they go to the Greek or to the Hebrew or to this or to that and try and find out what it means. Now, that's beneficial. It's like a shortcut, right? Rather than studying all the way through, you just go to something and take a shortcut and get direct to the source and learn it. It can be very beneficial. I'm not putting down the Greek and the Hebrew and all of these kind of things, but it can also be dangerous because you don't know Greek. Amen or oh me? <laughs> Somebody's saying, well, brother, it's just black and white, though. You take in concordance and read it, and it's there. You know, it tells you what that word means. I've got a Young's Analytical Concordance, and over in the back, it lists each Greek word, each Hebrew word, and then underneath the word, it'll give you how many different ways that one word has been translated. And that one word can mean many different things. And also, they've got these little cross-looking things beside some of the words, and you look down in parentheses, and it says that if it's used in conjunction with another phrase or another word or sometimes just one other letter, it'll change the meaning opposite. It'll make it totally opposite. Like, for instance, we say that uh, something is common, and then you put un on the first of it and make it uncommon, and that changes the entire meaning of the whole thing. Greek is that way, and you don't know Greek. And if you go to a lexicon or to a concordance or something, and if you depend upon that and say, Thus saith the Lord, this is what the Greek says, you're liable to get in trouble. 
If there was a thus saith the Lord, this is what the Greek says. Did you know every one of the new modern-day translations would agree perfectly? Because they've all taken all of the modern-day techniques and technology. They've gone back to the same original manuscripts, and they all conclusively disprove each other. <laughs> if you go to cemetery and start studying Greek, they'll tell you, if they're honest, and say, we're going to study from this interpretation of what the Greek says. And man, a friend of mine went to the seminary and he said, what do you mean this interpretation? He says, doesn't the Greek just flat say this in English? They say, they say, no, scholars don't agree on exactly what it means. There's about five major interpretations. That's the reason all the translations are different. So am I saying that you shouldn't go to the Greek? No, I used the Greek this morning, amen. I'm not preaching against the Greek, but I'm saying use it like you would a dictionary or something. Go to it, look at it, and if it bears witness in context, if the Scripture says it, if you can verify it by other Scriptures, use it. But instead of, of putting your faith in the Greek, put your faith in the Word, and if the Greek will help you take a shortcut to get there, and if you can see it, well, then use it. You know, sometimes when I look a word up in the dictionary or something, I'll see it'll just put the Word in a little bit different light than what I've been thinking. Maybe I've had a religious bondage and I've been thinking in one certain way. And I'll read a definition and all of a sudden I can see it and I can go back and I can't see that verse any other way now because you see I read it in the dictionary and I see that that is exactly what it's saying. It's verified and I can verify it by other scriptures. But I don't go back and start quoting the dictionary. I say, man, this is what this word means, and, and I believe that it's beneficial rather than just using a dictionary to, to verify that this is the way that it means here. Always verify it by another scripture. The Bible says, let everything be confirmed in the mouth of two or three witnesses and brothers and sisters. There is abundance of scriptures. You never have to use one scripture only to prove something. If you are limited to one scripture to back up what you're saying, you ought to just hold it a while until you get some more. Amen? The word will verify itself. Like, for instance... In the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, it's, it's talking about the rest that is left unto the children of the Lord. And it says that Jesus didn't lead them into rest. Boy, I got puzzled by that. What do you mean Jesus didn't lead us into rest? And I didn't understand that. And then I heard a guy one day say that that is not Jesus, it's Joshua. That Jesus and Joshua are the same words. One is Hebrew and one's Greek. Well, that sounded good. To me, it looked just perfect. Everything looked fine. I mean, I could see in context that it was, taught, it was making reference about the Old Covenant that Joshua, when he led the people into the children of Israel, did not obtain the rest that he was talking about. There was yet a rest to come that came through the Lord Jesus Christ. I could see that it bore witness, but I couldn't verify it by any other scripture. But I knew there had to be something somewhere, amen. And so I just kept reading it over in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen was up before the people giving his recitation or whatever you call those things, uh, defense, uh, and quoting all of these scriptures, he was talking about Moses. He was just going from Abraham to Moses, and then he came to Joshua, and he used Joshua one time, and the next time used Jesus, directly referring to the man Joshua under the Old Covenant, and you could see that it was there, and it was verified. Now, the reason I believe it's important to verify it by this is because you can go to different concordances, and depending on what you want to see, you can prove whatever you want to prove. I don't know if some of you are aware of that, but concordances differ with each other and want to conclusively prove the other one wrong. Now, I'm not saying that to knock anybody's faith out of something. I'm just saying it to give you a proper balance and to say that use these things constructively, but say anything that is extra-biblical is not, thus saith the Lord. And you need to use it, but don't abuse it. And I can... Did you know all of the people 
for instance, that are teaching that God doesn't heal every time, that are preaching that God puts problems and trials and tribulations on you. All of those people use the Greek to prove against it. Amen. I tell you what, if you want to, you can use the Greek to prove about whatever you want to. It, it's, it goes both ways. So I'm saying that you can profit from the Greek, but when it comes down to it, you better make sure that the Word will verify itself. The Word will comment upon itself. And through a word study, you can learn these things. You can sit there and you can begin to take things and benefit from it. Just recently, I was going to write a newsletter article, and I came to the word impute out of Romans chapter 5, and I was writing an article about it, and I wanted to define it, and I already knew what the definition was, but I thought I'd look it up in the dictionary and get it word for word. And so I began to write it down. As I wrote it down, it was different than what I thought. It was really different than what I thought. Just one little word was different, but it changed the whole thing. And I got to meditating on that, and I wound up throwing away my article <laughs> because I realized I needed some more revelation about it. And I got to studying that word impute, and I started just studying it in different passages of Scripture. And especially right there in Romans chapter 5, there was about six uh, different references in Romans chapter 5 that verified what that dictionary was saying and that showed me I'd been looking at it wrong and now you see I don't go to the dictionary to get inspired I can get it right out of the word because I've seen it and it's been verified and praise God it's become a part of me and since that time I've run the word impute along and I have gained tremendous revelation through studying the word impute what the word impute means boy it's powerful you can do things like that. Amen? And it is a very beneficial way of studying the Word. It will, it's a way that you can get your definitions. It's a way that you can receive revelation. Things will begin to fit together. Let me also say this, that it's important that as you study the Word, you can use different translations and stuff. They can be beneficial, just for instance, like a dictionary can, because the different translation will say the same thing, but it'll say it in a different word, and all of a sudden that different word may mean more to you than what you read out of the one that you've been using. They can be beneficial, but they can also be detrimental if you don't have a main translation that you use. And, of course, I'm not going to get off on this. I'm like old Cliff, that if the King James is good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. Amen. <laughs> I'm not going to get into this, and I'm not going to share. I use the King James Bible. That's the one I use. If you want to use a different one, you're welcome to be wrong if you want to. Amen. <laughs> but I do believe that it's important that you realize you need to use one consistently. Because, say, for instance, the word impute. If I was looking that up in 50 different translations, every one of them would use a different one, and I might lose some of the association because it would be put in different terminologies, and I might not be able to draw all those scriptures together. But if you use one main translation, and if that's the word that you've been hiding in your heart, well, that one translation will be consistent translating that word. And boy, all the Lord's got to do is give you a revelation on the word impute, and all of a sudden here's 50 scriptures that use the exact same word all tied together. But you see, if you've got Matthew out of one translation, Luke out of another, you aren't going to be able to correlate them the way that you should because the terminology will be different. You will not have the benefit of being able to put words together and things like that. And it is vitally, vitally important. For instance, when I'm up ministering, the way that the Lord ministers through me is that I put the Word in my heart and He'll quicken things back to me. He quickens scriptures to me. And if I say, for instance, I'm up ministering on faith, or patience, or, or hope, or something like that. I can draw on literally dozens, sometimes hundreds of scriptures because of that word, and the Lord will just quicken the word to me and put it in a verse, and man, I just go from one verse to the other ministering because of the word association. 
because I have studied things through a word study. Take hope and see every place that it's used and talk about all the things that hopes are doing. Amen? Y'all see the benefit of that? I use this probably nearly exclusively when I started studying about spirit, soul, and body because spirit, soul, and body is a rough subject to study. It's, it's one of the most basic things. I've been studying on it for about 12 years and I'm still getting revelation. I'm fixing to make all my tapes over on spirit, soul, and body. I've been learning so much. It's something you could study and study and study. But when I first came into it, I was really puzzled because, boy, spirit, soul, and body looked all interchangeable. It looked like sometimes spirit was called soul and sometimes soul was called spirit. And I couldn't understand it. And so I used, for instance, the Greek. I went to that Greek word and saw the different way that the word pneuma was translated all of these times, the different way that the word soul was translated all of these times. And it gave me a broader understanding. For instance, like synonyms is what it was. And I began to start looking and seeing all the different ways that the soul was identified, the different functions that it had. Just today, this morning I was studying on that and I began to learn some powerful things out of the book of Genesis about things that those people's spirit produced that according to all my knowledge, a dead spirit can't produce. But they produced. And I'm having to change some doctrine, amen? Because you see, studying that word, I'm just looking at every instance the word soul, every instance the word spirit is used, see what the spirit produced, see what the soul produced, and praise God, you can gain tremendous revelation through that. And it's really important. Praise God. And then there's other things. I'm just going to let some of them go. We'll deal next time about some of the some of the basic truths that you have to start off with that you do have to have revelation knowledge of before you can get into the Word of God. There's other methods of studying the Word that we still haven't covered that could still be beneficial, like, for instance, a historical type thing. You can study things historically, and you can really benefit from that. But it's also a problem because if you spend 10 hours studying history and five minutes studying the Bible that the history was talking about, you just blew it. Amen. But if you can handle it and if you can acquire it in a short period of time, you can really benefit by seeing, you know, when some of these things took place, how some of these books uh, went together with each other, and how some of these prophets... You know, I, I just recently, in the back of my Bible, it's got one of these things that, that uh, shows you a complete chronological order of every person and every event in the Bible and shows you other things that happened during the same time period and dates it. Of course, it uses secular history to do this. But as I looked through it, I began to find out that uh, Jonah prophesied during the reign of the kings and that he was a contemporary of Elijah and Elisha. That blew me away. And he even went up to one of the kings in the Bible and prophesied to him. I didn't know that. I thought Jonah was some guy far-fetched off all by himself, you know. And when I began to realize that Jonah also had a ministry to the king of Israel, he knew Elisha and all of these guys, and he had had experience to them, that was beneficial to me. And I went and looked up the scriptures that they used to say that, and I began to study it, and it helped me to see some things. Uh, Jonah should have had more revelation on what he did than what he did. See, he wasn't just somebody that just took off running. He knew what he was doing. And I profited from that. But I don't spend a lot of time doing that because, praise God, the, those things could be beneficial, but they are not as essential as being in the Word of God. You can spend much time in reference books and things like that when the main thing is being in the Word of God. Amen? Praise God. Also, this systematic study. I forgot to say this yesterday, but a systematic study, when you just read through, is very beneficial for putting things in context. Like, for instance, I don't know if any of you ever read Judges chapter 19. If you hadn't, probably don't read it tonight. Amen? But it'll throw you for a loop if you don't know what it's talking about. It looks wild. It looks completely contrary. What's that doing in the Bible? 
But if you will read on a systematic basis and get an overall view, you see, of what was happening, and if you can see the time frame that this happened in before the Lord had established the authority of a king, and the people, it says, you know, in the last part of that book that there was no king in those days and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And you can see that instead of God sanctioning what was done, see, it, it just states what was done and then it doesn't say God disliked it, God was displeased, God judged it, God blessed it. It doesn't say anything. And at first it looks like, man, what, you know, how did God let this by? But then as you see it in context and you see the overall view, you see that God was not dealing with those people as severely as he was after he established the authority and as he began to do these things. And God put that in there to show you the depravity of man, or how are you supposed to say it, depravity or whatever, or how bad man had gotten. <laughs> Isn't that good, Mother? <laughs> he put it in there to show you how bad man was, you know, and that's the same thing could be said of the Song of Solomon. Some people wonder why is that in there. If you read it in context, you can see. And Ecclesiastes, boy, that book is hard to study. Well, if you read it in context and if you'll see where Solomon's coming from, then you can begin to understand some of those things. So it's really important to put all of these things together, you see, because you are going to have a limited knowledge if you try and use just one of these things by itself. Amen? Y'all get anything out of that? Praise the Lord. That may not make you jump up and down and run, but praise God if you'll act on what we've talked about. I tell you, I believe that this is one of the most practical teachings that you'll ever get. And if you'll use it, it's something that you'll use every day for the rest of your life. And it'll really benefit you. And I've never heard anybody minister on this subject. I got all, most of these things by hard knocks. Just, you know, dog determined. And praise God, sooner or later, the Lord will get some things through to you. But you don't have, you know, it shouldn't be that every person has to learn it by hard knocks. Every, every person shouldn't have to experience that. We ought to be able to help each other. And some of the things that I've learned, I hadn't learned at all, but what I have learned, I can pass on to you. Praise God, you can go to the Word of God and see if that's beneficial. And if it is, use it. And you can take up where I've left off. Amen? Praise God. Let's stand up. We're going to pray. Again, I want to say that uh, we have ministered about studying the Word instead of ministering the Word as such. But yet we've quoted a lot of Scripture. There's been a lot of things put out. And the power of the Lord is present to heal, brothers and sisters. We've quoted enough word that I guarantee you it'll destroy any devil. It'll heal any sickness or any disease. And I want you to be able to receive tonight from the Lord. If there's some of you that came here specifically believing for something, praise God, I want you to release your faith and believe. We're believers. And we're going to act on what we've talked about. And it'll work and it'll be productive in your life. Father, right now, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Father, we put ourselves in agreement. And, Father, we pray that for any person in here, Father, that has need tonight, Father, has need of you ministering in their behalf and setting them free. Father, we just put ourselves in agreement and believe that the anointing power of the Holy Ghost is ministering to those needs. And that, Father, right now, you're healing bodies, that you're setting people free, spirit, soul, and body. And, Father, I praise you for it. We agree together on that, Father, and we believe that we receive it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, Father, we praise you for it. Hallelujah. Praise God. We hope that your heart has been quickened by hearing the Word of God through this message. Remember, Andrew Womack Ministries operates a helpline that you can call for prayer and information at 719-635-1111. We have a ministry website at www.awmi.net and you can write the ministry at P.O. Box 3333, Colorado Springs, 80934. 
Until next time, we pray that you will reach out by faith and receive everything that is yours through God's grace.